everybody, thank you for joining us. Welcome to this special edition of That Said with Michael Zeldin. Aisha, welcome. It's great to have you. Um, for those who haven't met Aisha before, she is a seasoned political and social impact advisor with over 20 years of experience, having worked for the Congressional Black Caucus, the Center for American Progress, served, serves as a political commentator on MSNBC and CNN, has been awarded top influencers under 40 by the LGBT leader, The Advocate magazine. And most important, Aisha and I were resident fellows together at the Kennedy School in the spring of uh, 2019, and she taught me so much. So it's great to have you here. Michael, it is so good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. And it feels like yesterday. I can't believe two years have passed since we were literally like kind of roommates yeah, <laughs> in our dorm. Right. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think I've aged, but you look marvelous. <laughs> so we're, we're in this special edition to, to talk about International Women's Day. And for those who are listening, of course, we know that International Women's Day has been around since about the 1910-1911 period. It drew, it drew its um, origins out of socialist labor conflicts um, across the world and, and was commemorated generally by marked protests and, and mass strikes and calls for peace and bread or uh, suffrage and, and matters of that. In the United States, it was sort of co-opted in a sense or made, um, depending on your politics, made a, a, a holiday in the, in the 1980s. And now it's a very corporate um, sponsored uh, holiday. They have things. This year's theme is to um, choose to challenge. And they ask you to raise your hand like this and support, which we all do because we all do support it. But I guess maybe the first question is, do we need it? Is, 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 is International Women's Day and Women's History Month, which is what we're in, um, sort of what we need? Or, you know, you, as I introduced you, you've been a, uh, a longtime political activist. Do we, need, do, we, do we need to return to the roots of what gave rise to the International Women's Day movement? Mm, mm. Well, you know, Michael, thank you for framing that up and contextualizing for us why we even acknowledge and honor this day and where it came from. I think about this in relationship to all the, the struggles, if you will, for equality that I have been a part of. So I am a woman. I also am black and I identify as a lesbian and have been on the front lines of movements towards equality around gender. Um, I led the marriage equality movement, also very knee deep in racial justice. And there is a thread for me that is always about uh, equity about justice as it relates to recognizing certain groups of people, because there was a moment in time where somebody finally woke up and said, it's kind of bad how women are being suppressed around the globe. Now, I have a very domestic uh, perspective about all of this. Um, but, you know, this, this question around whether we need any of these days, do we need a uh, pride month in June? Do we need black history month in February? Do we need to have women's history month? Whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Um, the question, the answer to that is yes, but every single day 
we should be striving to have an honoring and an inclusion and um, trying to make sure that whether it be women or people who are female identified um, or others are feeling like they are have equal opportunity, equal access, equal participants um, in our societies. And the reality, though, is that we don't. So that's how we always end up here in these conversations, right, is that we have a bold vision and we went, oh, women, yes, we're going to champion women and girls, et cetera. But women are still being paid less. And from a public policy perspective, so many of the bodily autonomy gains that women uh, have made are constantly being um, attempted to be derailed within the state. It's the same thing for uh, Black Americans. With every civil rights uh, movement uh, gain and win, there's an attempted setbacks. Right now, we're living through voting rights, uh, voting voter suppression. So same thing with the LGBTQ community. One of the things I used to always say when I ran the LGBTQ Victory Fund Institute is that we did not go home and, you know, everybody's problems weren't solved because there was a Supreme Court ruling or because uh, around civil rights or because Martin Luther King's birthday was acknowledged or because there was any commemoration around women being meaningful participants in the world, right? We never could sit down and go home because of one movement, one moment, one win, one act. And that is why every year, every day, hopefully, um, we get to have these conversations about why people matter, really. Yeah, and that's right. And and I didn't ask the question with the intention to say we don't need it. I, I tutor um, a, a young man, third grader. He's in the uh, Youth Baseball Academy, and we had uh, Women's Month as our theme for this this month's tutoring. And so we're learning all about the the great champions of of women's history, which he knew nothing about. So. There is value in it, but at the same time, this is nice, but at this, as you just said, Georgia is moving to suppress vote, which is affecting African-American and people of color uh, communities, especially women, because that's the dominant voting um, class. We see that there are hostile work environments all over the place. We have not only the Cuomo situation, but there are two congressmen who have um, engaged in conduct, alleged to have engaged in, yep. in, in yep. conduct that make Cuomo's conduct seem benign. So sometimes I feel like we need to step up our game. We need to somehow take it to the next level. And I always think of you when I think of stepping up one's game, because I think oh. you as 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 a, a great thought leader around how do you do that? I remember when we were in... in, in um, Cambridge, and you were telling me, get in the car, we're going to Manchester, we're doing actions. And I'd say, well, you know, I got I got a book to read and off you went and there I stayed. So how, how should how should an activist, there's not one way, but how should activists be thinking in these times about what to do to be effective? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, and you raise a good point, Michael, that everybody has in has the opportunity to have impact in different ways. You read a lot of books because you're also a really good writer, right? So you contribute to the conversation in the way that you do. I don't do a whole lot of writing, but I do a whole lot of talking, right? And so there are so the the first way that I would, you know, answer that is it is past time for any of us to feel like we have to be an activist or we have to participate in any prescribed way in order to make a difference, have an impact, and more importantly, shift culture. Uh, 
And that's what really this is all about. I mean, the same um, horrible people, and this is very much Aisha's opinion, the same horrible people that are attempting to derail black voters in Georgia are also the same horrible people who don't want women to be able to make decisions about their lives. They're also the same people who do not want there to be a livable wage uh, in their state, let alone in America, and who would continue to suppress the rights of immigrants, right? There's a thread, there's a, there's a through line here about um, people who respect people and think that we all should have equal opportunity and people who don't. And, you know, for me, it is that black and white. And that's not, you can't rail against that machine. Some of us choose politics as a, you know, and some of us choose activism. But at the end of the day, there are two real thoughts uh, in this society. There's a lot of people in the middle, I guess, um, that are just regular people who just have, you know, ideas about maybe family or other things that get into these bigger social issues. And so to me, having dialogue with people generally about values is just a start. And that is really activism because it's hard. It's really easy for, and I live in Trump country now, y'all. So it's really easy for somebody in my community to be like, oh, that black lesbian woman, da da da, and like, throw things and spit and do all the stuff that Trump taught them to do. It's really difficult, though, for somebody in my community who knows me and knows me as a business businesswoman and as a, a, a television personality and as a neighbor who um, now is co-parenting children who go to the same schools to have a vile, visceral reaction to me about things we might kind of disagree about because there's so much more in common. So activism isn't just marching. We all need to march. And sometimes, you know, I believe that we also need to burn some things down. Um, but that's not all that we need to be doing. We all need to just kind of be human. And that is really the basis of like how we start to shift perspective uh, across ideologies, um, home and certainly abroad about women and, and anything else. Right. So, on this, in our audience, and as we move this forward to the podcast platforms, we we focus on a lot of uh, corporations, public relations companies, communications leaders, and and we get asked a lot. Well, if we want our company to be on message, if we want our company to be a place where the best and the brightest will want to come um, and will want to stay. What, what should we do? If you, if you were, if you were hired um, by XYZ company that says, Aisha, we're at this critical juncture, race and, 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 uh, and, and equality are really here at this moment joined in a way that hasn't been joined for a long time. And we want to be not only thought leaders, good policies, but we want to be action leaders. What, 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 what's your advice? How would you, how would you tell them to, to, to uh, behave? So that well, someone like you all, might join. So, so someone like you might join them. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, anybody who's listening to this program, I'd invite any corporation to reach out to me. I do this for a living and there's a consulting fee associated with it. <laughs> um, but what I will offer generally, Michael, is that there, corporations do a really good lip service. They're going to pay for very, uh, they have very deep pockets for PR, for messaging, um, and can promote nice, you know, jingles and lip service and all these things. 
that really are meaningless and go nowhere. And I would say that instead of messaging, think about metrics. And when we talk about social impact, measure what the impact is. And let me explain what I mean by that. Impact is not just simply affirmative action saying we used to have two black people. Now we have seven. Check. That's not impact. Impact is how are diverse people moving through your organization? Is there get to be a gap of time when all of a sudden, um, you know, the people drop out, right? They leave, they go elsewhere, right? Is there uh, a ceiling that happens that you can't explain? Every single thing that corporations do, every dollar that they spend damn near, they have invested in need so much data and analysis to have these convoluted metrics around sales, around, I mean, just the marketing analysis alone, millions and millions and millions of dollars. This is not something that is measured very well impact on people, families, and communities. Uh, we lost you. Your... You can go somewhere. Oh, right. could you say that sentence again? We just lost your volume. For if, you, if you start there, really being intentional about what impact you're actually having and not just tokenizing and counting bodies, but how you're changing families, communities, and your corporation through the people who are there, then you start to have the right conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and what all that means. I got it. It's, it's, uh, and, and, but I think messaging is also important. I think that you have to walk the walk, but, but talking the talk also is, is an important aspect. And so a community, a, a solid communication strategy around this metrics makes sense to you, Aisha? You know, I would rather, and I have been, so I'm a, a I'm comms person. I've been doing communications for years. Right. And at this point, I would rather way less communication. So just to put this in perspective, let me talk about it. I'll tell you a little bit really quickly about a bank that I consulted for last year. Traditionally, communications is a cost center, right? It's kind of damage control, frankly. So companies think about communications. They think about government affairs, um, public affairs, that kind of external stuff as a cost center to the company. Oh, we got to make sure we got that $15 million budget item to like cover our ass, right? It's the cover your ass cost center. Well, when you're, when you're using a tool that is about covering your ass and was really just a cost to the company, that doesn't in any way feel strategic. There's such a negative connotation around communications and why we're using them, a little bit different than marketing and customer acquisition. That's different, but communications, PR, et cetera, that you're already starting off with the wrong attitude about the whole thing. I would rather companies stop trying to PR their way out of some, some mess, right? Because they're always trying to cover their ass because they've always got something, uh, some muckery that they've got themselves into. I'd rather them stop doing that. And under the cover of darkness, even, start to think about how their bottom line can be enhanced by ideas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So for example, last year I consulted for a bank and traditionally banks, you name them, all of them are like, oh yeah, we're doing $50 million for Black Lives Matter or whatever the heck it is that they're claiming. All of this stuff is coming out of their foundation. So you have financial services behemoths that are throwing tax-free dollars out of their foundation at marginalized communities and claiming that they're having an impact. It's not an impact. The real crisis, if I'm a financial institution, I'm thinking about the crisis that my business can kind of solve a problem for, is that we have a major wealth gap in this country. Women, 
obviously, who are underpaid, you know, are certainly uh, far less wealthy than men. And then black folks are way down at the bottom of this for a lot of reasons. So I helped to coach uh, the client that I had on how can you think about bridging the racial wealth gap that we have as a value proposition and boon to your bottom line, not a charitable effort, right? Because charity is neither here nor there. It solved nothing. Billions of dollars towards anti-poverty and half the world's poverty, right? Not a thing. Um, not charity, not a cost center of communications, but how can this company boost its bottom line? And when you change that perspective, what happens is that companies come up with solutions and tools for communities that they can use that are accessible, that bring them in customers who become customers for life. That when you're thinking about how are we going to grow in a certain segment, it is fundamental to have diverse voices at the table because otherwise your business strategy doesn't get off the ground and you don't make the money you thought you were going to make because you don't have the right bodies in place who can design that for you. So that is my very free advice I'm giving you all that you can call me about more later about like why I think that communications is not um, I'm not, I'm very underwhelmed with it. I think that it is fruitless at the end of the day. It doesn't have social impact within a company. It doesn't make the, the, the public believe you anymore, right? Reputation is a whole other thing that it doesn't quite solve for. Um, so it's kind of a dying way of dealing with the diversity realities of the future. Yeah. And I guess where I would push back is to say, I think you can marry those two things effectively. I think if you have a good communications process you have a good public relations message and it's tied to the metrics that you're talking about that so it's not there's not a disconnect between the reality of what's going on versus the message that you're sending i think that you can be a, a very powerful cutting edge place where people want to work um company at least that's how google says do no evil and Google is completely under the gun for a lot of a lot of things around, you know, tech responsibility. So I, I think that, yes, taglines and slogans and all that stuff are completely important and people spend billions of dollars in them. And you're right. The question becomes, what's the end? Yeah. And the public is just smarter these days. Right. Like we don't need to believe what you say because we can actually go and find out what you really do. And there used to be a time, a Mad Men era, where all that we knew is what they told us. Right. But we don't have to just take the communications and believe it. Oh, the company said this and they're so smart about how they're telling us these things. Because all it takes is a Google search to realize that, that isn't quite reflective. So, yeah, yeah, if they could marry them, that'd be great. Yeah, that's what I think. I think you, you have to have the, the, the message, but the message has to be connected to the, 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 the boots on the ground uh, of the way in which the organization operates. I want to, we're going to open this up for uh, questions if we have them, but I mean, I could keep talking with you for, forever and a day, but I wanted to become a little bit political if I, if I can and ask you uh, to put back your Congressional Black Caucus hat and um, talk to me a little bit about one of the things that I am very sort of confused about. And that's this question of the filibuster in the Senate. We, we, we see that the House has passed H.R. 1. H.R. 1 is the big voting act protection bill. Remember that the Supreme Court knocked out Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act so that you can't uh, force a court to review a change in election law uh, affirmatively. Section 2 is under attack and the court has just uh, reviewed it. And so 
Congress has passed this bill in the House, H.R. 1, and uh, we're waiting on it in the Senate. It would require voter protection, but the mm-hmm. filibuster seems to be standing uh, in, in the way. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a point of view on it? We, we know the yeah. history of the filibuster, yeah. um, and it was not, never used really for good purpose, but if you fast forward to the possibility that in 2022 or 2024, it, it flips and and the party that you're not a member of takes control and then takes advantage of the rules that you've changed, you know, are you biting your face, biting your nose to spite your face sort of thing? So I'd love to now, hear what I, you I think, think that, about it. So that argument, um, so what Michael is saying, this argument that like, oh, we can't, this is the Democrats who I frankly find to be quite spineless a lot of the time. And it frustrates me because I'm a Democrat. Um, so I get to critique my people. This idea that we pretend that like, oh, well, we shouldn't do that thing because it's the wrong thing. And what if they, you, they weaponize that against us later on, to me, is something that really privileged white people say. Privileged white people get to sit around and have zero consequence or feel the brunt of really heinous things that are happening and, 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 and rationalize why they're not going to stop them in the moment, because maybe there's some kind of far off you know, boogeyman, something that might show up and we got to preserve the process and the process fundamentally becomes more important than people. My frustration is exactly that. At the end of the day, you can't trust, the Democrats cannot trust the Republicans anymore. Since the Obama era, every single thing, if you follow public affairs, right, current affairs, there has been nothing that the Republicans have done that has suggested that the Democrats should just, you know, do the right thing and then they'll do the right thing too later on. That's not the game that we're playing anymore. So one, it's naive and stupid and a very privileged thing to keep having these conversations um, because they're detached from reality. The thing that I'll say about why this is consequential, what, what Michael referenced in HR1 is that it was essentially repair and strengthen our voter access in this country Republican Party state by state is trying to make it more difficult for people to vote. Why this is important um, and why Democrats should care in the Senate, frankly, and kill the filibuster in order to pass HR1 um, is because the the balance of political power rests on the fairness of elections. Right now, what's happening is that the Republican Party is the minority in the country, but they are able to rig the game in the states so that they hold a significant number of of congressional seats. So by population, they shouldn't have as much power electorally as they do, but they get to rig the game because they're doing all these different state by state maneuvers. What the federal legislation would say is that, hold on. Nobody should be able to rig the game. All Americans should be able to have the same access to voting. When the game is rigged, Democrats lose and will lose for a generation. So this is a moment in time when there is the the appetite and I think the power there could be in Washington to ensure that all Americans have equal voting rights, which Republicans have chipped away at over the years. So they're like, ah, hold on. Everybody should be fair. If they don't do that, then Democrats are killing themselves for a generation. They're going to be the minority party. So just out of sheer political self-interest, they should do this, right? Um, but you got to have enough people who are elected officials who are close to the pain 
to get out of their privileged mindset. And I'm talking specifically about Kirsten Cinema and about um, uh, the West Virginia uh, Senator Joe Manchin as well, because those are the two Democrats who are Democrats in name only, frankly, most of the time, who are hedging on this whole thing um, that that, you know, but we're talking about West Virginia and Arizona. It's it's easy to come from a place of privilege and say, well, we're not really worried about the people, but those are the same folks who are going to themselves lose power and be jerry rigged out of their own jobs if they don't act. So it's I clearly have an opinion about it, and it is really frustrating and a conundrum at this point. Yeah, and you've always been very shy about offering your opinion, so I'm glad that you're I know coming out of your yeah, you do, you do. <laughs> so you know, I live in the District of Columbia. You live in the state oh. of New York. Um, uh, one of the things that that to the exact points that you are making that we are pushing for is statehood. We, we, you know, we are, we are a colony. We are taxation. I lived in DC for 20 years, over 20 years. We are taxation without representation. And the thing that I, looking back on the Obama years, and you and I both were Obama people. um, The thing that I never understood was why he never raised statehood. Why, when we had 60 senators and 60 Democratic senators and, and a large majority in the House in his first two years, he never raised it. Now, for the first time in the Biden administration, it seems as if they're actually talking about it. And it strikes me that that's an imperative to the types of progress that you think Democrats need to make. They have to push this as well, but maybe for Puerto Rico as well. What do you think? Yeah, I think that there's just, I mean, there's always the politics at play, right? Obama had a lot of things that he needed to try to get done, and he was a black man having this job. And so in hindsight, as we evaluate his legacy, I think people are realizing that Obama was probably a pretty straight-laced, middle-of-the-road Democrat. He was not some wild progressive by any stretch of the imagination, and he couldn't be. He couldn't be because the number one priority of the opposition party when he got elected was to derail the president. That's what they said. That's what Mitch McConnell did, frankly. He got Obamacare and that was like a lot. So I don't blame him for not bringing this up. It is also really um, a a, a challenging and difficult thing to do. This is a a country and a legislative body who is always coming back to tradition. tradition. You just talked about the filibuster and how, you know, it's like, oh, well, people don't want to kill the filibuster because traditionally it's supposed to do this and that. From a tradition standpoint, having 100 senators is having 100 senators. That's what the Senate is. It's 100 people, right? And so we're going to have 102. That's weird. Got to wrap your mind around that. We're going to have 104. Are we going to have, you know, like there's just so much there that's tradition that you got to bust. Um, but it's not fair. And, and I got to tell you, because I'm not, I'm, I am 100% supportive of statehood. I am here. I be- absolutely believe that DC should have representation. I also, as a pragmatist, still am not all that optimistic because we are talking about the same uh, Senate that doesn't care enough about fairness in voting for generations to come to pass a voting rights measure, do you really think that they're going to change their numbers and pass statehood and start adding new states to the world? Like, I just don't feel like that's even pragmatically realistic. I'm glad that Biden is talking about it. I think the president should absolutely lead fundamentally on the issues and drive them. Um, I don't know that that is their like number one number one priority in life, but I I would hope that we see some progress during this administration for sure. Yeah. But, and this is, this sort of relates back to our PR campaign, even if they can't accomplish it, having 
it become part of the national discussion more from a public relations uh, messaging standpoint. I think it's important because I don't know that people even know in most parts of the United States that we have no voting representation in, in Congress, that we pay among the highest tax rates, tax rates in the country. And we have, we don't have a Congress person who has a right to vote. We don't have a Senator who has a right to, to, to vote. And we don't even have complete home rule. We still are beholden to the committee mm-hmm. on the Hill that mm-hmm. oversee the, the work of the district of Columbia. It, it's well, and com- here's what's worse about all of this. Here's what's worse about all this, Michael, is that no, most people around the country don't know this, but worse is that most people around the country don't understand this. Most people, when surveyed around the country, doesn't know who the hell their congressperson is, and they got representation, or what that person is technically even supposed to be doing for them. There's such an undermining of civics education. Um, Elections that, you know, elections are almost always these days animated by the presidential, right? They're almost always animated by the presidential or a change of balance of power like Georgia. They're not like, oh, my God, you know, my my congressperson this and, and that like it's it's really unfortunate. And so I think there's a whole public. We started off talking about communications. I think that there's a whole civics education element um, and public you know, relations campaign that needs to happen about why representation even matters and what these people do for you, because the average American is sitting on their couch looking at CNN thinking, what a bunch of yahoos. I don't even know who mine is, but he's up there doing something crazy. Right. Like it's doesn't always feel connected to people's lives. Yeah. So last political question. I, I've taken you into District of Columbia politics, and I know you're no longer a city girl. You're not, you're not living in Brooklyn. I'm always a city girl in my heart. Well, you're a Jersey girl to, to begin with. And then you're, I'm a Jersey girl. <laughs> you and, and the boss. But what is going on in New York? What, what, mm, a, what We got drama. To say the least. Is oh so the 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 higher they the mightier they are the harder they fall right so Governor Cuomo who um you know has has run around touting himself the king of COVID uh is about to go down seriously here because several women I think the last I checked was five I'm not sure if that number has might have even increased in the last few days but several women have come out and said that he was sexually um. They said it's sexual harassment. No one has said that he, you know, did something uh, to them in a sexual nature so much as he very much has made people uncomfortable and has sexually harassed women. And there are pictures of him touching, of him, you know, like way too close. Uh, Some of the accounts of it are really disturbing. The most, you know, critical thing, in my opinion, is that there are several women who say, in the workplace and otherwise, that this guy made them feel really, really, really uncomfortable. Um, And he said things to them that were, you know, and sometimes of a sexual nature. You can't dial that back. You can't deny that it happened. I think what he's doing right now is, is trying to say, well, you know, now I know that those things are wrong. Get the hell out of here. Like, you can't pretend like you just now knew that what you were doing was, you know, coming on to people and that it was super creepy, right? Like, you can't now pretend like, oh, well, now I know it's wrong and I won't do it again. So, so many people are calling on his resignation. I think he should resign too. 
um, the state legis the House, the state legislature has actually, uh, in a blow to him, started their own investigation, which is kind of a precursor to a potential impeachment. The attorney general has had opened up an investigation first, which also, you know, she ran kind of with Cuomo on a Cuomo ticket. And now she might be the one who deals the death blow here. Um, so it is it is interesting that the the guy who ushered, you know, New York through COVID and wrote a book about it and was high on the hog and getting nominated for awards um, is going to go down uh, in this way. And the last thing I'll say is that it is not a secret that Cuomo has a reputation for being a horrendous bully. And I think he's getting a, a taste of his own medicine in some way. Karma is a bitch. Yeah, and this is what I was this is what I was driving at and asking you what's going on in New York because we heard today that AOC and Jerry Nadler have asked for um, his resignation. It's not. I mean, you've got you've got two congressmen. You've got Ronnie Jackson um, and um, what's the guy's name? Carth Carthon. Um, who, who, uh, Madison Carthorn, two Congress people who've been accused of, two Republican congressmen who've been accused of activity probably way worse than, um, than, than Cuomo. Yet there's no one who is in their party that is asking for even an investigation, no less a resignation. Those people don't have any values or morals. I mean, I can't sit and speculate and just could care less about the Republicans and their pathway to hell. But yes, that is clear, right? No, like it's obvious. No, but I guess what your point of that, that there must be something that the Democrats are not sort of rallying around him saying, let's wait for the investigation to, to play out. So it must be that there is a, a culture there that they are aware of that they're just saying, you know what? Enough's enough. We've got to cut our. Cut Nobody our was surprised. Here. Nobody yeah. was surprised. And that's, yeah. that's telling. Yeah. The last, the last New York question I have for you, and then um, maybe it's time to, to call, call this a, a, a day um, is Maya Wiley. She mm. is mm-hmm. uh, a person we know because we've been on TV yeah. with her She's coming number three, I think, in the in the straw poll for New York mayor. She is uh, a thunderbolt, uh, in my estimation. I, I, I like a lot of what I see and, and hear, though I'm a New Yorker by both, by birth, and root for the Yankees, you know, and the Giants, and sometimes the Jets, and it's impossible to root for the Knicks um, or the Rangers, really. But what's your take? What's, what's, what's going to happen there in New York city? New York city is really, it's going to be interesting in New York city. I think it's up in the air, you know, and Andrew Yang is in this race now. Yeah, yeah. He, he, came in, he came in first in the straw poll. Because he's actually. got a ton of money. I mean, he's got a ton of money and he's got a national platform, right. With his, with his run. New York is in a really precarious place. I think whoever gets this job is probably going to wish they didn't want the job in the first place <laughs> because there's going to be so much um, financial trouble to clean up in the wake of COVID. It's, it's a complete disaster. Maya is awesome. She is a great, strong progressive. I am so glad that she got in the race. Um, I remember the conversations over a year ago about like, is Maya going to run? Like someone needs to push her to run. I think her voice is really important. It is not, it is also important to have this fierce progressive black woman in the race. There has never been a black woman who was mayor um, and her perspective as a warrior on justice, on racial justice issues in particular for her whole career 
is very enriching in the whole conversation of it all. So, and she is a big champion for workers' rights and, you know, and pretty much everything that you and I believe in, Michael. So, no, I think it's great that she is there. I think Andrew Yang needs to take a lot of seats um, and sit the hell down. But New York is also interesting because the people who are playing today are not the people who were even being talked about. I mean, Corey dropped out. The, 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 the president of the city council was at one point expected to be a front runner, right? And, you know, that it's all, it's, it's all going to be, I think, up in the air. The other thing I'll just add about New York and, um, is that they're also trying ranked choice voting for the first time. And this is going to be a big thing. So I think that someone like Maya, she's coming in three in a straw poll, but someone like Maya actually has a really good shot at this um, because with ranked choice voting, there's a whole new way now of the people who are towards the bottom being able to kind of, you know, be similarly yoked, form some alliances so that the people who are picking the number two might all just pick enough of the number two as the same person to boost them up into the number one slot. So there are a lot of different political dynamics that are happening in New York right now, COVID, obviously, ranked choice voting, and then, you know, this interesting hodgepodge of candidates that make it a fun thing to watch. And the last thing I'll say, shout out to, um, to um, Maya, who is um, Maya's campaign manager, actually ran um, uh, Castro's presidential campaign. So that's also uh, Maya has a has a Maya, another black woman who is running her campaign there in New York, which is also cool. Very cool. So we're at the point of the last question. And I always like to ask the last question being, so what question should I have asked that I didn't ask? Mm-hmm. What, what's your, give us your closing statement. Well, I don't on, think, on, we're yeah. talking about international remember, We're, we're talking, talking about women. We're talking, we're talking about, about women. international women's day and women's history month. And I'm sure that I've missed yep. all the important questions. So tell me, tell me what's the, what's the thing. Well, I want to just honor our progress and our power <laughs> because here we are, um, I completely credit Nancy Pelosi holding the gavel again. So the, the majority in the House is all due to women right now. In 2018, women rose up all around the globe. The largest demonstration ever in history, mass movement around the world was, was the international women's marches that rose up in the wake of, uh, well, this was 2017, but it rose up in the wake of the, of the, the Trump election, um, literally right before his inauguration. And it was that energy of women being frustrated, saying, we are not going to tolerate nastiness. We are going to like take control here that ushered in the political energy that shifted the power uh, in Congress in 2018 in those midterms election. It was women who did all of that. We also have more women holding elected office around this country than ever before in history. Congress has more women. They're mostly Democrats um, also than ever before um, in history. And so we are powerful. Our voices matter. We shift the outcomes of elections. Um, we do. And that's a really huge, um, I think it's a really huge frustration for some of us who know what our power is and are still being picked apart, prodded, um, and attempted to be pushed around through policy by men who are in state legislatures. And so there's still a long way to go, but like girls rock and women have literally been changing, been changing the face of our politics in this country. And that's amazing. In um, Molly Ball's book, Pelosi, which is a great a biography of Nancy Pelosi. She tells how she, in her years in office, tried to get 
women to run for office. And she always had a difficult time getting them to do that because they didn't want to suffer the slings and arrows that go with politics. After the Trump victory, 42,000 people called into Emily's list. And remember, Emily's list is early money is like yeast. That's what it stands for. It's it's to fund women candidates. 42,000 said, what can I run for? At the local, the state, the dog catcher level, I, I need to get involved. And that's exactly to the point that you made, Aisha. That's that's where we ended up in, why we ended up in 2018. Although the Republicans did elect a number of women as well, to, to their credit. So we have a question, um, if you have time still. Uh, we have a question in the, in the, from a... Uh, I can only take one because I got I to gotta jump. Okay, dokie. The, the, it's a great question. And it is, as a mentor for women, people of color, and the LBGTQIA community, what advice do you offer them to help them succeed? Mm. Be you, do you. And see all of the ways that you show up in the world and the, and, and the diversity that you embody as an asset. Because the lens that, you know, all of us are unique people. And certainly when we are a variety of quote unquote others, um, which are, you know, these beautiful, colorful experiences that we get to have simply because of who we are. It makes us bolder. It makes us more powerful. It makes us see the world um, through, I think, a far more interesting and complex and nuanced lens. Lean all the way into all of that and you will be successful. Aisha Mills, you are a thunderbolt and I love you. Michael, thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.